The Enviro Show. But just before we move on, just a very quick bit of eco-info that I think Christina may have enjoyed, and you may have read this too, and I hope that I've interpreted it right. Couldn't resist it, though. You might have read that the 3,500 residents in the very remote village of Rujukan, nestled in a steep-sided valley in Norway in the albeit distant shadow of the Himalayan mountain, just never seemed to get direct sunlight on account of the great height of the mountain in which they were shadowed. So it seems that industrialist, a man by the name of Sam Ada, who established this remote settlement years ago, also built a cable car so that the villagers could ascend to a point where they could get, uh, where they could reach the sunlight and also get themselves a dose of vitamin C. But as winter kicked in, they would have to ascend higher and higher, and it became increasingly difficult. So finally, the plan was instead to bring the sun to the valley, rather like Muhammad to the mountain, with the use of cleverly angled mirrors. Well, it was a plan that Ida had dreamt up years ago, but at the time didn't have any money to complete it. So, 15 million krona, or approximately 8 million rand later, they now have three giant mirrors that throw light on the subject down into the valley, which has apparently cheered up the residents no end. So isn't that nice? You're listening to The Enviro Show. And uh, if you've got uh, comments or anything that you'd like to let us know, you can do that. You can pop us uh, an email at enviro at safm.co.za or you can find us on Facebook. We're The Enviro Show on SAFM. So there we go. Well, let's start off first uh, then with uh, Australian Ivan McFadden. He's the owner, uh, a skipper, skipper owner of a yacht called Funnel Web. And he made two journeys from Melbourne to Osaka, 10 years apart. The first time he said that the 28-day journey, there were fish aplenty to catch and to eat. The second time, however, more recently, they caught just two fish on the whole journey. But I wondered what the purpose was of the voyage in the first place and what it was that he was looking for and what it was that he found. We have him on the line all the way from Australia. Hi, Ivan. Good morning. Well, good evening. <laughs> but you are at the other end of the world, so absolutely. Thanks very much for getting up at the crack of dawn to talk to us. Ivan. T- <laughs> That's fine. Good, good blessings. Ivan, tell us a little bit about this journey that you undertook uh, 10 years ago. Why did you do it the first time? Uh, well, I did it for the same reason both times, really. It was part of a, uh, a long, a lifelong dream of mine. It was a two-handed yacht race from Melbourne to Osaka in Japan. The first time I went up to Japan and then turned around and went straight back down to Melbourne to home. But this time I'd always had a dream to, to um, sail in the Transpac race, which is from Los Angeles to Hawaii. So it, the second time we went to Japan... Then across to San Francisco, down to Los Angeles, and down to Hawaii, which was also part of the race. Like the race was from Los Angeles down to Hawaii, and then um, I continued on home. So altogether, it was twenty-three thousand nautical miles for the whole trip. Hmm. How big is your yacht? Just a matter of interest. <laughs> Fifteen meters, fifty oh. feet. Gosh, so it's quite a quite a little little vessel. Uh, yeah, and the longer you're out there, the smaller it gets. Yeah. In the end, you feel like you're floating around on a match. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shame. But you were, <laughs> you yes, it was, it's a small craft, but it was it was all that you needed. But the first, there's a bit of a delay here, Ivan, so I'm just going to ask you a question and then you just go for it. The first time you did this, it seems that you just only had to throw out your, your rod and, you know, you would get plenty of fish, they were leaping aboard, plenty for you to eat. Um, <clears throat> on that 28-day journey. The second time around, were you expecting that there would be so little? Just explain the difference between the two journeys. Uh, no, I was expecting the same amount. Very briefly, leading into the, to the race the second time, they had a lot of uh, training nights, and one of them was in actual fact a food night, and all the other competitors were there, and, it, and everyone had to stand up and say what they were going to do for food. When it got around to me, I just stood up and, you know, they were all talking about dry food and hydrated food and all these different types of things. And it got to me and they said, and what are you going to do, Ivan? And I said, I'm going to do the same as last time. I'm just going to take rice and I'm going to rely on fishing. Well, all I can say about that is thank heavens I'd taken some canned food because if I'd done just relied on that, I would have starved to death. There was a dramatic difference. where We could throw a line in and catch a fish within half an hour, every time, every day. 
It was so dependable that I just assumed, of course, that it was going to be the same this second time. And yet the second time, I think you just said, five and a half thousand miles the first leg and only two fish. Mm. And then right across to America, virtually the same thing, nothing. Sure. And it's not like you can pop out to a shop and just quickly get something and you're stuck in that sort of situation. Sounds pretty scary, but even scarier is, and I've just been reading your article, even scarier was that there was a point when I think you were, you were just north of the equator, you were up above New Guinea, and you looked out and you saw a great big trawling, a trawler. Um, it was a big ship, you describe it like a mother ship. Just, just tell us what happened when you saw that ship. Um, it, it had been trawling all night, and you could see it on the horizons, like they're all lit up. Uh, up and down and up and down. We watched it go on a reef and it was in an, at a time when we didn't have a lot of wind, so we were only kind of poking along at about three or four mile an hour. So, you know, all night is not a long, lot of distance. So we watched it and watched it. It was my turn to have a sleep. I had a crewmate on the boat. There was two of us. And he took over the helm. And the next thing he's yelling out to me, Ivan, you better get up here. You better get up here. I think we've got trouble. So I jumped up off the bunk and I've come up and I've gone, what's wrong? And he said, they've launched a speedboat. And sure enough, over on the horizon, you could see a speedboat screaming towards us. And the fear up there, of course, is there's uh, pirates. So I was really frightened to death that they were armed and we, we, would, we would have nothing. I mean, we didn't have any rifles or anything. It wouldn't even occur to me. And... Um, they, they eventually, they got over to us and they came alongside and it was the exact opposite. It wasn't pirates at all. Well, or pirates of a different type. They, um, they gave us uh, three or four jars of peaches, apples, oranges, like fresh fruit, and then they insisted we take these fish. They had about five sugar bags full of fish and, you know, about... 30 to 50 fish in total, I suppose, all types of species. And they're they all dead. And we're saying, we don't want them. There's only two of us. We can't eat them. We've got no refrigeration. And they went, well, just do what we do with them. And we said, well, what's that? And he said, just chuck them over. Chuck them over the side if you can't eat them, because we just chuck them over anyway. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, they're rubbish. And I said, how can they be rubbish? I was astounded at this. He just said, yep, they're rubbish. They're not worth anything on the market. He said, the only fish we're after is tuna. There's no market for anything else. So just chuck them over. And with that, he, they just returned back to their, their uh, trawler. Sure. That's, that's uh, you know, at risk of sort of being a bit sneaky here. What nationality was were they? Um... Look, I, I don't know. Their English was really good, but they were like a Polynesian. So mm. I'm, I'm guessing they're like from Philippines, Manila, something yeah. like that, somewhere around there. I, yeah. I don't exactly know. I, in hindsight, thinking about it, there's a couple of things about it. One is I think that they came and gave us the food and the fish because they were actually pirates and they were fishing illegally on a reef. And the best way was to give us gifts so we'd keep our mouth shut and just go away. But, of course, that's in hindsight. At the time, it was just, wow, we've got all this jam yeah. and fish and we just, like, peaches and fish, and we just were appreciative of it, so we just kept sailing. Yeah, I must say, but, I, I yeah. did, it, it did kind of felt like maybe it was sort of blood money, you know, just sort of that's, that's enough now, you know, just don't say anything. But uh, either that or just blind ignorance, maybe they just didn't appreciate what was going on here. So that's a pretty scary story. I think, it's, you know, increasingly um, frightening was the fact that not only were there no fish, I think you described that you saw just one lone whale bobbing up and down in the water, but a massive amount of rubbish. Yeah, um, well, yeah, the rubbish was from, uh, more from Japan over towards the States, although it is everywhere, there is rubbish everywhere, but I think a large part of the rubbish too was from the tsunami. Uh, well, a lot of the bigger stuff, the plastic just seems to be everywhere, but 
you know, there was pieces as big as a truck and things like that. Well, that's definitely linked to the tsunami. And in reality, I, I don't know that the tsunami rubbish really is that harmful, but the plastic is is just terrible. The mm. plastic story is just absolutely terrible. Terrifying. And I, there's really not a whole lot you can do about it, especially in a little tub, if you'll forgive the expression, your size. You know, it's not like you could pick <laughs> any of it up. There was not, not a whole lot you could do about it, really. And also, I think that you mentioned that your the hull of your yacht was painted quite a bright colour, and by the time you got back, it, it was all worn out. I'm not sure what that indicated, but maybe something sort of um, corrosive in the water. Salt, perhaps? Yeah, I, I feel that's what's happened. It's, it's acidification or, I mean, God, an even worse thought, which, you know, just terrifies me to death, is from uh, radiation from Fukushima. And, and I, like, I, I'm not a scientist, I'm just a sailor, but when you sail across the ocean and you see it absolutely desolate, like not a bird, not a fish, no dolphins, no turtles, it, something drastic and terrible has gone on up there. And whether it's direct result of Fukushima and the radiation or whether it's overfishing, look, I... As a yachtsman, I, I really don't know. All I can do is report what i actually seen and witnessed firsthand. Um, but it's a wake-up call. I, I, I feel like I've seen into the future. I've mm -hmm. seen into an abyss unless we all pull together and come up with some sort of a solution. I mean, that, that's how heartfelt the whole thing yeah. is, you know. And as a yachtsman, what, if anything, can you do about it? I mean, you know, as you were talking about it, I had this image of Tom Hanks. You remember Cast Away the movie when he's sort of bobbing around on the ocean? There. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it wasn't quite like that. I'm not sure if you grew a long beard like that. But is there anything at all that you can do about it? I mean, you've written this very moving article in a very sort of straightforward way. But can you take, your, can you take the issue further? Because for a lot of us, we just don't even see these things. Well, at the moment, I'm just making sure through radio stations like yours that we actually get the message out. I mean, the more people that are conscious of it, I think, I think the stronger the movement will become if people demand change. But even, I, but very, very small things that I see, even, even talking around that could make a difference, and it's very, very simple. Stop eating tuna. I mean. Mm. That, that's, just don't buy it in the supermarket. There, there's, a, there's a massive difference to start with. You know, um, if there's no market for it, these people won't buy it. They, they won't trawl for it and they won't kill all the other fish. Um, reduce your use of plastic, recycle. Uh, you know, it, it's got to be a global change, I, 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 I'd imagine. But we're, I'm, from this, I'm talking to a lot of uh, really important people that make policies, and I'm talking to the Global Ocean Commission. They've got a meeting with me next Tuesday, and they're looking at things that we can do to try to save the ocean. So there's a bit of a groundswell starting to uh, get stronger, and we need to keep pushing that along to get it as strong as we absolutely can. Yeah. How strong is your voice? Because I th believe your plan is to lobby lobby government ministers. Uh, are, have you got there yet? Uh, yeah, I've got some appointments with a few. Um, but what I have learned from this exercise, even talking to government ministers, if you're just one person and you rock along, they don't really listen too much. You know, they kind of listen and then, oh, well, they listen to the majority of the people, which is presumably what they're there to do. So really we need to make sure it's the majority that's singing out, not one little lonely voice like mine. Because yeah. if, if, if I go in there with five million petitions, then I've got a pretty strong case, you know. So I've got one guy who's in Canada has donated his time to help me build a website. And we might do something where people can go and click and make a petition or something. Yeah. And then I can take that along to various governments and I can say, look, this is the will of the people. This is what the people want want done, you know. So we'll be moving in that kind of direction in the future. 
Sounds like a plan, I'm, Ivan. I'm pretty committed to it. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, yeah no, I, it sounds like a plan. I mean, I think when you've when you've been, it's not for no reason that somebody like you gets exposed to something like that. You've got to come back. You've got to do something with it. I'm going to give out your website as it exists. Will they find, if anybody wants to check on it, will they find out more information? Is it Yacht Funnel? Uh, yeah, it's yachtfunnelweb.com. Yeah, okay. That's just, uh, that. that's the actual boat's site. But we're updating things that are going on there. But as we're speaking at the moment, we are getting a Broken Oceans website built, and then we will put all the environmental stuff on there. And it will be very simple for people. It'll be basically just clicking and and trying to get an idea of how many people find this all to be an issue because the more people that have it as an issue, the more influence we have. And honestly, I... I don't know if you know the frog in the pot story where the frog sits on the stove in the water and it just boils away and it dies sitting in the pot and doesn't jump out. To a large degree, I feel like that's what we're doing. We're just sitting in the pot and it's getting hotter and hotter every day and nobody's jumping out and someone's going to have to jump out. And I'm dedicated to jumping out, I can tell you. I've got grandkids and I want to see them with a planet. Oh, bless you, Ivan. Thank you. I'm going to give out that website and, and keep peeps open for the Broken Oceans website, and I'm sure it'll be up and running very soon. And don't give up the fight. We're right behind you. Thanks very much. Take care, eh? Cheers. Thank you very, so very much. much. Totally my Bye. pleasure. Cheers. Ivan McFadden, what a story, eh? And I have a lot more to tell you there. So if you want to check his website, it's www.yachtfunnelweb.com. Yacht funnelweb.com but do keep your peeps open as I say for the Broken Oceans website that he plans to get up and running very very soon well here we're going to stay in the water really next for the uh, next item here on the Enviro show on perhaps a slightly more optimistic note because coming up this Saturday is a swim for nature it's happening in Franchuk and next week is going to be something called the Journey for Water campaign and it's uh, all happening under the auspices of WWF World Wildlife Fund and uh, on the line with details from uh, WWF, we have Pedzi Gozo, who is Head of Communications. Hi, Pedzi. Hi there. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. So, two, two things here. We've got the Swim for Nature and we've got the Journey for Water. Let's start with the f- Swim for Nature. That's happening at Bridge House School, I think, in Franschhoek. Is that right? Well, it's happening at the Berg River Dam, but it's hosted by the Bridge House okay. School. And it's essentially the Bridge House Mile, which started last year. And WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, has got a category in there um, where people who are enthusiastic about the environment and want to do something about it can actually swim in that category and swim for nature for 500 rand, essentially. What they'll get is an opportunity to swim in various categories in the swim for nature and also swim in a, in a WWF Splash Celebrity Challenge, um, which is a 200-metre challenge, um, which, will, which will then go towards nature. Okay. How many people was it the inaugural one last year then? Yes, it was about 500 people, and this year they're looking towards 1,000 people oh, wow. and doing well, so we're getting there. Um, but, it's, you know, it's a new initiative and it is growing, but I think, you know, it's a phenomenal growth from last year. So we're very enthusiastic about it. A little bit of um, a draw card, I would hasten to say, is uh, Rick Nettling, who's going. Yes. Is he going to be swimming there, or is he going to be? Yes. On well, the he's edge? basically a supporter. We are hoping that he'll MC, but even if he doesn't, he will be there. And we've also got Amy Klein Heinz, who's also going to be there, and um, and we've also got um, Jeremy Harris, who will be swimming from KFM. So we've got a few kind of sparkly characters um, to to draw people, and and who are also kind of lending their support to the cause, which mm. is wonderful. Mm. Well, it sounds like it'll be a lot of fun. Is there an age limit or can anybody enter? There are various age limits because it's a school event, essentially. Yeah, sort of so there are, there are age limits which can be found, you know, on the WWF website um, under the supporter page. So people can go there, see the different categories, see the different races, also with different distances. I mean, there's, there's races for people who are kind of strong swimmers, 
um, and people who also just, you know, want to just have a good time and enjoy themselves. So, you know, it's, it's really open for everyone and everyone is catered for. Just thinking about a thousand people all splashing across the water like a bunch <laughs> of lemmings. It's going to be pretty crowded, isn't there? But certainly, uh, certainly there'll be no danger of drowning because there'll be plenty of people to sort of haul you out absolutely. if anything goes wrong. Oh, no, that sounds like lots of fun. I think also fun, but on quite a quite a sort of serious note, the Journey for Water campaign is also yeah. starting next week on the 4th. Is it right? It is. It is. And the connection here um, is that the Berg River Dam, where this swim is taking place, is an essential kind of space for our water. WWF have partnered with Sunlum to do research into water. And what that research has very recently revealed, which is quite interesting and a little bit startling, is that only 8% of our land area gives us 50% of our water. And a lot of that, that land, that 8%, is actually under threat. And the Berg River Dam forms part of the 19 catchment areas um, that form part of that 8%. So it's one of those kind of key source water areas. Um, so, so that's why we think that the connection between the Berg River and our Journey of Water campaign is quite significant. And essentially what the Journey of Water campaign does is it tries to essentially reconnect um, urban water users to their source of water. So, and as I said before, there are 19 catchment areas, and we'll be doing a walk from one of them, which is the Boland Mountains that supply the Berg River, and we'll be literally walking um, from that area into the city of Cape Town and following a journey of water that most people's water takes, you know, to get from the natural ecosystem space um, to their tap. So it's a symbolic journey. I mean, these journeys take place in all sorts of areas around the country to different cities, um, but we're doing it in Cape Town just to symbolize, you know, the, the difficult journey and complex journey um, that water takes. It's an 85-kilometer journey. It will happen over four days, and we've got some quite exciting people will be joining us along this journey. So oh. that's what the campaign is centred around. Okay. Yes, it's a bit. I suppose it's a bit like taking a child into a field to see the cow where the milk comes from, isn't it? Really, you know, because we should take for granted that you turn on a tap and there's plenty of water. It'll be interesting to know that journey. So, so it's starting. Where did you say that? It's starting in the Boland Mountains, okay. so just above the Berg River Dam. So, what we're trying to show people is that waters don't water doesn't come from from dams. It actually comes from catchments, and catchments supply dams. And if those ecosystems, those catchments, aren't healthy, then then our dams are rendered useless, you know, as is all the infrastructure that it takes, the built infrastructure in terms of pipes and taps. And all of that is really rendered useless if that ecological infrastructure isn't intact. Mm. So we're starting up in the mountains and then we'll walk past the dam and then down through the mountains and into the city bowl. Wow, it sounds like quite a, quite a trek, I have to say. <laughs> in fact, we're going to be hearing a little bit about ecosystems in Neisner in just a minute. But the Berg River Dam itself, has anybody done any sort of testing on the water? Yes, I know, you yes. Know, what, what, it what is, is it looking like? It's one like? of the best sources of water. It's got one of the freshest um, water. So we're very fortunate in Cape Town, you know, and that our, our sources are, are, are great. Um, but like I said, the, the areas that, that support them um, do have looming threats. Um, but, you know, for the moment, the Berg River is, is one of the most pristine um, rivers in the country and the water there is, is some of the best in the country. So it's a, a symbolic walk um, and presumably it will be recorded one way or another and perhaps it'll be seen or heard or whatever. But what can, what can the rest of us do? Mm. You know, can we, I mean, we're here in Cape Town, we've got the reclaiming Camisa, we've got the underwater river, uh, you know, waterway that comes off the mountain and goes into the sea. But is there any, anything else that anybody can do to sort of symbolically see for themselves where water is coming from and going to? Yes, we've developed a Moby site and a lot of the campaign elements, the walk is just one of the elements, there are others. Um, and every one, every part of the element drives people to a Moby site, which we've created, and it's journeyofwater.co.za. And what we really want people to do is to go into that Moby site, download where they are in the country, find out what catchment supplies them with their water, where they are at the time, learn a little bit more about the catchment, learn about what 
uh, threatens the catchment, you know, whether it's invasive species or threats by mine or climbing cha- climate change, and also what makes that catchment beautiful, because I think it's really important for us to celebrate these, these spaces. And our belief is that by connecting people um, to their natural catchments and having them to have almost an emotional connection and a relationship with that catchment will make them appreciate water more. On the website are also various tips um, for people to help on how to save water or how to use water wisely, you know, more than save water because we need to use water, but how to use it wisely on a, on a day-to-day basis. So there's a, there's a font of information there, um, which I think people will find quite interesting. And this, this has never been done before. And I think that, it, you know, for WWF, it's really important um, for people to, to truly understand what it takes um, for them to get all sorts of resources. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a, a site worth going to. So the Moby site is journeyofwater.co.za, journeyofwater.co.za. But the WWF site is www.org.za. Lovely. And, and yeah. as of Monday, just to add, that the website will be up and running too. So that's in development. And when we start walking, the walk starts on the 4th of November, which is Monday. There'll also be a website, also www.journeyofwater.co.za, um, but basically just another platform. So you'll be able to get it on your Mobi site, on your Mobi f- on your phone, mm. um, through the Mobi site, and then also on the, on a website. There's no so escape. Just open it up, yeah. Lovely. Petsy, thank you so much. And may thank there be you. lots and lots of people splashing across the water in, in uh, French, or at least in the Berg River Dam. And may the journey of water go really well. Thank you so much. Thank Take care. you. Cheers. Petsy Gozo, and she's uh, head of communications at WWF. Once again, www.org.za in the Moby site and or uh, the website is journeyofwater.co.za. Well, just while we're really on water issues in the environment, and I did mention that we'll be hearing about ecosystems in a minute, ecosystem services in Neisner have come under a bit of scrutiny just recently. When Sandparks and the municipality there did an assessment of both supply and demand, well, to find out, try and find out a little bit more about this, we earlier spoke to manager of planning for the Garden Route National Park, Len Duplessis, to find out first what an ecosystem services really are. Well, ecosystem services can simply be defined as services that are generated by the natural environment, uh, which enhance human well-being and are directly used by people. Its development decisions um, is based on financial and social criteria, and the natural environment and associated ecosystem services um, is for free, and it's not traded, so therefore they are perceived not to have any financial value. And uh, that results in, in uh, a zero default valuation of ecosystem services in decision making, which is, uh, uh, yeah, which needs to be corrected. Ecosystem services needs to be cal- calculated in when uh, decisions are being made, development decisions particularly. Yes, I imagine that they would be free in as much as the whole ecosystem and yeah. nature in general belongs to all of us. Yeah. But somebody has to manage it because it does interact with, you know, what human development is going on. So Absolutely. give us an example of one play, one one way in which a human development sort of impacts on the system and how, it, how it's affecting it. Sure. I'll answer the question by putting it in the following way. The, you know, it is for free. It's perceived to be for free. But one should not consider the costs for not paying, but one should consider the costs for not having those systems. What will be the effect on the economy if those systems are not, are not there anymore? The, the natural system that do not deliver those ecosystem services. I can, I can refer to a study that was done for the Neisner catchment recently. Mm. And this might put it a bit more into perspective. Um, what we've done is we've taken the Neisner catchment, the total Neisner catchment, from from source to sink, from the mountains to the ocean, and we divided it up into different land use types, land land covers, and then we. We listed all those, and I'll give you a few examples of what it is. Um, we looked at the estuary, for those of that are familiar with Neisner, the estuary environment, the marine environment, the, the rivers, the wetlands, the riparian vegetation, the indigenous forest that occurs in Neisner, some of the fainbos. We looked at roads up in the catchment, even ag- agriculture, coverage, plantations, and, and so forth. And we looked at those landscape assets, um, tried to list what services are being offered by the various landscapes. Um, does that make sense to you so far? Mm, I think so. I certainly can relate to the estuary, <laughs> the marine, the riparian forests and roads. 
as I said, so we take each one of those landscapes and try to list what ecosystem services, and I'll give you an idea of some ecosystem services, and I'm just going to name a few of these. So these actually, we came up with a list of about 38, um, but I'm going to mention a few, like um, sense of place um, is an ecosystem services. Uh, you, would, you you can't, you, normally you cannot, uh, or in the past, you cannot couple a, a value to the sense of place. Um, that is a very important ecosystem services in the context of NISDA. Another one would be um, recreation, um, tourism recreation, water-based recreation, um, the waste assimilation, uh, water supply, which is a very important one, where we get our drinking water from is, is an ecosystem services from the natural environment, and that, that's not costed most of the time. Mm-hmm. Sense of place, that's a very intangible, isn't it? Is. It? Yeah. it is, definitely. Mm, it but, is. It, but it's very important. I mean, Neisner is a, a huge uh, sort of eco-jewel, really, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. So, so it mean, needs to be quite well handled. Absolutely. What are, what are the big challenges, and are people recognising that there's an issue here? Well, I think the big challenges, especially in a place like Neisner, Neisner is, is quite, is a, it, it's quite a fast-growing town, is that we need to, for future planning, um, bring ecosystem services into the comparison of decision when we make decisions regarding development. Uh, it's, it's business unusual. We cannot keep on doing business as we do. We cannot grow. Um, with a, We need a green economy. We need to um, a green growth scenario. As the town grows, we need to bring in all these ecosystem services and the value they offer um, in, in all planning decisions being made. Uh, especially Nisner, um, you mentioned the sense of place. I mean, you need, just need to talk to any estate agent and ask them what is the difference in prices with, from a property with a view on the lagoon and just on the other side of the hill with a view of not on the lagoon. And I think it, uh, it's five times more the price. So the sense of place has got a very direct impact on the on the, the property prices in Nisner. And there's only one to mention. I mean, it, it goes into all walks of life. So what are the challenges? Are people unhappy because the services are not the, the, are not what they require? It's, well, you see, the challenges are, at currently, these are, the challenge is for people to start realizing that in future, if ecosystem services and the value they offer is not part of the permutation or part of the formula that we use to make decisions, um, it's, not, it's not business as usual, as I said earlier. Um, the challenges are to create a mind shift, decision makers, do not only consider economic and social aspects, but to consider ecosystem services as well. Um, otherwise, it's downhill from here. It's, it, it can, it's not sustainable the way it's going on. Um, so, yeah, it, the ecosystem services should be part of, of, of the decision-making um, formula. I suppose one of the things about ecosystem services is that it's an opportunity to educate people, but it's also an opportunity to employ people. Absolutely. I mean, um, if you look at Nisner's economy, one of the main economic drivers for the area is tourism. Well, actually, the main one. And um, you should ask, uh, you could ask any tourist uh, what, you know, what makes him come to Nisner. And you've mentioned sense of place, adventure tourism, all sorts of tourism. Um, and if you take the natural assets, the ecosystem services away, it'll have an absolutely direct impact, a severe direct impact on the on the economy as well as the employment opportunities. Um, so if we don't look after our ecosystem services and the ecosystem, the natural ecosystem itself, it will, um, in the end, have a negative impact on, on, the, on the economy mm. and, and the, social, well, the social impact as well. So if anybody wants to know more, if anybody resident in Neisner would like to sort of take an active part or, or get, you know, mentally yes. their head around it or anybody who's planning to go there, is there a website where they can find out more? Absolutely. They can, they can use the Sandbox website, www.sandbox.org, and they can just click on the, on the Garden National Park link and then follow the link to there, uh, from there to the Ecosystem Services Report. And I can also just maybe add um, what this study that we undertook, uh, the beauty of it is one of the strengths of the model is that you can do different um, scenarios. Um, you can create a scenario where there's a green growth, where you do consider the ecosystem services, and you can create scenarios where there's a growth and neglect of the ecosystem services. And then the, it's, it's real facts of what is going to be the effect if we do not start taking ecosystem services as a real cost in, for the future development. Well, there you go. Something else to think about. I think I said the same thing last week, that if, it, if this programme doesn't scare you witless, well, I'm not sure what will. There's always seem to be something to stress about. But it, it's knowledge is power, so the more you know, the better it is. And if you want to find out a little bit more about ecosystems, check the Sandparks website, which is sandparks.org, sandparks.org. 
Well, you either are or aren't a vegetarian, but more specifically, I think if you're going to be a vegan, you really, really do have to commit. And tomorrow is World Vegan Day. So we wondered, what is the point of being vegan? Is it just because it's good for you? Is it good for the planet? And to tell us a little bit more, we have on the line Aragorn Elof, who is one of the directors of the South African Vegan Society. Better place to tell us all about it. Hi, Aragorn. Hey, how are you doing? Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, let's start with a personal question. Why are you a vegan? Um, I'm, I guess I'm vegan for the reasons most people are, primarily ethical. Um, I don't think that we need to eat other animals, and it's cool and unnecessary, and, yeah, therefore, for myself personally, I find it morally indefensible. Um, apart from the ethical reasons, there are very clear ecological reasons and some really good health benefits. Okay, let's because we're the Enviro Show. Let's find about uh, find out a little bit more about those. I mean, ethical reasons, I, su- I suppose, has been one of the reasons why people become vegetarian or vegan. But increasingly, we have to consider the, the planet as well as just our own selves and our own health and our own state of mind. So, the the ecological reasons are would be what? Um, well, there was a really great study released about five years ago um, by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the U.S called Livestock's Long Shadow, and it concluded in, in quite a scientifically robust way that the livestock sector was one of the three single largest causes of anthropogenic climate change, and that's because of the transportation, production, distribution, um, the methane equivalent emissions from livestock. There's a whole lot of factors that go into that, the deforestation that's needed to grow crops to feed livestock. So because of all these inputs and the way in which that sector works, um, it's bigger than the global transport industry as a climate change emitter. It, it, I mean, it does have to be said, though, for um, it, it's assumed that people need meat, that they need protein. And across the world, over centuries, people have had a balanced diet that includes both sort of uh, plant matter and animal matter. If we all went vegetarian even, or if we all went vegan, what do you think would happen? Um, well, the one thing we'd see is there'd be far less land use. Um, the amount of land required to produce a vegan diet is probably as little as one-fifth to one-tenth of the amount of land required for what we'd call the average Western diet these days. Um, the other inputs are drastically lessened as well. So you need less water, you need less arable soil, there's, there's far less emissions. So it's a much more ecologically friendly diet, probably by an order of magnitude of 10 or so, mm-hmm. if, if you look at some of the most recent research looking into this. Would we be able to produce enough of the right sort of uh, nutrition for people in terms of crops? Uh, you know, I suppose I'm thinking of genetically modified everything these days. Um, would would we be able to produce enough to to supply everybody and keep them well and healthy? Um, that's a complicated question. So the simple answer is yes. And in fact, we'd be able to produce it on so much less land and with so many less resources than we currently use that we'd really be able to optimize our food production systems as well. So we'd be able to not just look at producing vegan food, but local, organic, vegan, and ethical in various other ways. Um, the more complicated answer to it, though, is that it's not just a question of producing food, but how under capitalism food is distributed. So and even if we have a wonderfully ecologically friendly way of producing a balanced plant-based diet for everyone on the planet, which is completely scientifically possible and ecologically pragmatic, it still needs kind of political and economic will behind it. And, you know, the current kind of economic mm-hmm. system we live under doesn't really allow for that. I suppose this is, could only really happen in a sort of an idealised situation. But if everybody were to, um, perhaps like in the old days, have their own livestock, you know, they had their own chickens in the, in the backyard and they had their own cow and their own sheep that were grazing on their own bit of land, would, would that solve the problem? Um, it's very, that's a very interesting question because intuitively I think most people, especially when we get into kind of permaculture systems and stuff like that, think that that's an obvious solution that would work really well. But in fact, if you look at the climate change emissions of that m- model of farming, of kind of grass-fed cattle and local anima- animal-based agriculture systems, it's actually more ecologically devastating than modern factory farming. Um, and it's just because of the sheer scale of the amount of people alive on the planet today and economic efficiency that we've had to 
you know, end up with what we have today, mm. these kind of large-scale factory farms. But, you know, if seven-plus billion people suddenly had to revert back to sort of local animal-based permaculture systems even, or, you know, kind of chickens in the backyard, whatever it is, uh, there'd be a, probably at least a 50% increase in, immediate increase in anthropogenic climate change gases, for one, and more water inputs and more land use. So it's actually, it'll even be more of an ecological disaster. Yeah. So we've gone past that point, really. Just going to give out our phone number if anybody's got any comments on this one. 0892 2010. It's the sort of thing, you know, when people talk about vegetarians and vegans, everybody gets very defensive if, they, if they're carnivores. So I'm going to give people an opportunity, uh, you know, if you're listening and you feel you want to um, make a case for being a carnivore, give us a call, 0892102010. So what about you, Aragon? How do you manage to keep your nutritional, um, your nutritional balance absolutely? How do you manage to keep yourself perfectly healthy? Um, well, when I first went vegan, look, I'd been vegetarian for about 10 years before that. So I had a basic understanding of nutrition. But when I went vegan, one of the first things I, I did is kind of go online. It's really easy nowadays. I mean, maybe being vegan 50 years ago was tough, but... You know, I went online, there were plenty of websites, so it was pretty easy to learn the basics of vegan nutrition. And, you know, within a month or two, it just became like second nature. I, you know, I don't think any differently about my lifestyle to anyone else who's buying food and visiting restaurants and stuff like that these days. It's, yeah, it probably takes as little effort for me as it would for anyone else. Yeah. And, yeah, it's not very difficult. It's just it's a couple of basic things which I think everyone would actually be, would be well to learn. I, I don't think people in general know enough about nutrition. This is something I encounter often when I'm speaking to people about nutrition. Yes, I think it is. It's, it's what you know, isn't it? I think we've got a call on. We've got Richard from Coxstat on the line. Hi, Richard. Uh, good evening. Hi. Yes. Uh, sorry, let me just turn this channel uh, off. Okay. Yeah. Hello. Yes. Uh, my comment was that your speaker seems to be overlooking a number of things when it comes to uh, carbon dioxide, and that is that uh, cattle eat grass. Grass captures carbon from carbon dioxide from the air, and that is built up in the soil in organic carbon, and that's trapping carbon. So, in fact, farmers running cattle should be getting a carbon credit rather than a debit. Hmm. Any any take on that, Aragon? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things you have to look at there, and it gets quite technical, but you have to look at the sequestration times for carbon and sort of inputs and outputs of the life cycle there. Um, what you also have to look at is the amount of so and the amount of land erosion and the kind of shifts in fertility of land over time. So, you know, if, you, if you're herding huge amounts of cattle on a grass-fed system, in the short term, the models might demonstrate that it's a kind of, rel that's a net carbon sink. But over longer periods, if you're looking at kind of land use changes, it's actually a net emitter and it, it, it's, incredibly ecologically problematic and this is what a lot of the latest research is in fact saying do you do you see it happening i mean here in south africa you're part of the vegan society of south africa are there many members um yeah it's something that's sort of grown exponentially over the last five or six years especially um it, it's gotten to the point where veganism is is sort of we actually ranked as one of the most vegan friendly countries in the world at this point which is quite astounding given that 10 years ago no one knew what it was but these days, you can go into pretty much any major supermarkets, and there's sort of vegan-friendly labeling on a lot of products, and most restaurants you go to understand what veganism is and be able to make you a good meal. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that's grown a lot, and we encounter thousands and thousands of vegans in our everyday work. And I'm sure that there are many people listening who think they would absolutely not give up their steak and chips for anything. I should have asked you this right at the beginning, but give us the exact definition of what being vegan is. Um, well, I think everyone's got a different definition, which I think yeah. is actually a good thing. But I'd say for me and probably for the vegan society in general, um, it's just living a lifestyle that causes as little suffering to humans or other animals as is possible and as little impact on the planet as possible. So it's a kind of principle of least harm. So it's not just what you do and don't eat, it's how you live your life? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we prefer to refer to it as a vegan lifestyle as opposed to just mm. a vegan diet. So it's a plant-based diet, but it's a lifestyle that goes beyond that, that seeks to diminish suffering caused by humans that's unnecessary, and you know, which would include things like not wearing animals or 
not pursuing cool forms of animal entertainment, not doing unnecessary scientific research on animals. So it's an entire lifestyle. Mm, indeed. Well, I'm going to give out the website because I think if anybody has, um, you know, piqued their interest in listening to what you've had to say, Aragorn, I, ha- I have to ask you about your name, Aragorn. <laughs> it's the most wonderful name. It sounds quite sort of um, medieval. Well, tell us about it. My parents are fans of Lord of the Rings, so <laughs> I'm named after <laughs> the characters of Lord of the Rings, which, which serves me well when I'm trying to do outreach for a first diet, you know. Okay, okay. Well, well, well done to Kim Winter because she said it sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. Well, there we go. Now we know. Aragorn, thank you very much. It's been really fascinating. And thank you, Richard, for your call. And uh, I'm going to give out the details of the Vegan Society website. Take care. Thanks a lot. Great. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Aragorn Eloff and uh, one of the directors of the South African Vegan Society. Well, if you'd like to check it out, find out more. It's the veganSociety.org.za. And I suspect it's probably already up on our Facebook page. It's veganSociety.org.za. And our Facebook page, once again, is uh, the Enviro Show on SAFM. And don't forget, we are podcasts. So if you want to find out a little bit more or you want to listen to something, once again, you're most welcome. You could just check the website, www.safm.org.za safm.co.za safm.co.za go to podcasts and there you will find us well finally this one is so for Christina Scott who is right here in this little studio with me I suspect because she was known to love any festive occasion but Halloween in particular well I think was just something that really really appealed to her I'm guessing that any of the little ghouls and spooks who've been out trick-or-treating are probably now in bed but you can't think about Halloween without thinking pumpkins. And earlier this year at the Hrut Pampuan Competisi, the winning uh, squash, I suppose you call it, weighed in at an incredible 417.5 kilograms, which is pretty hard to believe. And I think that uh, already they are open for um, for entries for next year. So it, And now, in fact, it's absolutely the right time to be planting your pumpkin seeds. So if you're planning on producing a biggie, you might just like to check the website, which is hruatpampuan.co.za. I've been dying to say that. Hruatpampuan.co.za. Well, I don't know if he's actually a, an award winner or a champion pumpkin grower, but we do have on the line a man who certainly knows his way around planting vegetables. He's a vegetable grower near Grayton. He's Ross Phillip, and we have him on the line. Hi, Ross. Hi, good evening, and good evening to your listeners. Thank you very much. So, now, Tommy, have you, did you enter the Hrut Pampuan competition? Or? No, I'm afraid I didn't. I, I am a vegetable grower, and I do grow pumpkins and cucurbits, but uh, I am involved with the fellow that organises it. Okay, sorry, you grow pumpkins and what? Uh, butternuts and the, the cucurbit group. Cucurbit? Those are the squash types and the... Oh, okay. Uh, types of crops. Okay, well, you learn something new every day. Is there a secret to growing giant pumpkins? I mean, one always imagines that if you just leave it long enough, it's going to grow and grow and grow until it explodes. But is there a particular uh, genre of of pumpkins that get to be big? Yes, it's terribly easy, really. Um, It's something anyone can do and a great thing for a family to do. If you can get your vegetable in the kitchen and make a compost heap through the through the winter, and then pop a seed in and a couple of seeds around the edge and just a lot of water and sunshine and you've got you on your way. To grow a particularly big one or just to grow a pumpkin generally? Yes, there are many different varieties. That is called the giant pumpkin, the one they used, used for the competition, and uh, you are able to access it through Checkers Group mm. to take part. But there are many, many varieties. There's one that I use and I breed myself, and it's called a salon pumpkin. Uh, they call it salons in Afrikaans, but it's actually got an interesting history. And um, from the Boer War, prisoners were sent to Ceylon, and they worked on farms there as prisoners of war. Of course, it's now called Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. And when they came back, they sowed some of these seeds into their jackets and smuggled them back into the country. And it's an opi pumpkin, and we've been doing it for many years. Okay, goodness me. The, your line is not terrific, um, Ross, so I hope you can hear me all right. I'm just thinking, though, you know, bigger is not necessarily always better, especially in vegetable terms. So the bigger a pumpkin gets, even even a giant salon one, um, does, it, does it lose its nutritional value as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger? I mean, are, are they not better when they're smaller and sweeter? It's not 
not really. If you, it will only get as big as the food you can supply it. So wonderful to see how that little pit just turns into this massive big, big pumpkin. The, the fewer pumpkins you've got and the more food you've got, the chances that it will get big is, is very good. And uh, it's, a, it's a way of storing up all that food and turning it into a, a dirty vegetable waste can turn into compost and that can turn into a huge pumpkin, which, of course, you can put on your roof and store for your entire winter supply. Are they are they very fussy creatures? I mean, in in terms of the soil content, you say. I mean, you mentioned right at the beginning there that if you pop a seed into a a compost patch, which will be very rich and fertile, they will do very well. But I mean, you know, not everybody has the opportunity to have a, a compost heap, and a lot of people are on soil that's not so very good. Are they quite tolerant in not terrific yes, conditions? Very tolerant. But if you have a sandy or a, a, a soil that's not very full of nutrient, you'd have to feed it. And it reacts very well to compost or anything organic. We'll also get a good reaction from chemical fertilizers, but we do it organically. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not fussy. It's got a nice, strong uh, leaf, and it's not susceptible to too many bugs. Um, the only problem is when the rainy season starts, if you get closer in our Western Cape area, I'm here, Grayton, then um, you tend to get a few funguses. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine they can go rotten. I believe that now is a, absolutely the right time to be planting the seeds, and a lot of people will have scooped out pumpkins today for Halloween. If you keep... Absolutely the, the right you, time, of course, to think for the real Halloween, because that would be the end of the summer in the northern hemisphere. So they would be harvesting their pumpkins, whereas we got to scratch around quite scared yeah. to find pumpkins. So we're busy planting. And it's a perfect time to plant if anyone's interested in the Groot Pampun competition okay. because that takes place in March 2014. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give out the, the website once again, but just quickly, if you if you want to get your or sort of harvest your own seeds and you scoop out the inside of a pumpkin and you keep the seeds, um, do you then have to dry them do, or can you put them straight into the ground? What What's the process? Yes, you would dry them. A lot of commercial crops are hybrids, so you keep that seed and it will grow, but it won't form a fruit. But that's one advantage of the salon, which we breed ourselves. It's an OP, which means it's open pollinated, which means that seed will be fertile again. Uh, but one, be careful what seeds you keep, because you can go to all that trouble and you won't get a fruit. But it's simply to get the fish off it, dry it, keep it up place and plant it out in the next season. Hmm. Well, lovely. Ross, thank you very much. I'm afraid you've been coming and going a little bit, but we I think we've got the drift and we know that we need to dry our seeds if we're going to plant them. And absolutely the best place to plant them is in the compost heap. Thank you very much, Ross Philip. Take care. Well, there you go. If you'd like to know a little bit more or if you'd like to enter the pumpkin competition, it's called the hrutpampun.co.za is the website. It's uh, run by ShopRite Checkers, and I think that you can find out all the details on that. And don't forget, the next year's competition is around about March next year, 2014. So get planting right now. Well, thank you very much to the team. That's Lon Wabofani and uh, Kim Winter, and I'm Nancy Richards, and I'll be back again on Sunday with SAFM Literature. But right now, it's uh, just after 10 o'clock, and once again, it's time for Stephen Kirker. Hi, Stephen. Nancy, I'm going to challenge you to grow a groot pompoon by March. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm on it. Consider me on it. <laughs> okay, well, we just have to get the right seed. Okay, you're, you're, you're on. I'm going to have to find somewhere to grow it. We'll have the SAFM Groot Pampuam competition. I reckon I say it a little bit better than Nancy. Probably not much better, but anyway, uh, more essential environmental stuff uh, next week, Thursday night, between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock.